It's showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I am your host, Show. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, today, on this episode, again, uh, a lot more episodes lately, I guess, right? Because we are less than a week away from the Academy Awards. So coming up later this week, I'm going to try and get uh, one more April episode out. Actually, so more than more than the regular two. I, I shouldn't say regular because we all know I am anything but regular when it comes to releasing episodes of this podcast. But uh, we are going to get out the uh, annual Oscar predictions because I think we are we are, the BAFTAs are now in the rear view, uh, the Directors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild, the Writers Guild, the Golden Globes, I guess, but it's all in the rear view, so we can finally make our predictions. And as always, Quentin Amundsen, who has joined me basically every year since I've been doing this podcast, is going to keep on coming back. So a fun tradition we got going here on the Showtime Movie Podcast. So later in the week, expect the Oscars prediction episode. Uh, but for now, great timing, right? Because I finally caught up on all of the Best Picture nominees. I did it. Yes, I know. Thank you, uh, thank you so much. They love me. They really love me. No, it's it's been so hectic. So I'm I'm very impressed. I know less movies probably than I should have watched this year, but either way, I'm glad I got to see all the best picture nominees and most of the acting nominees. Okay, so you know what? Without further ado, why don't we get right into it? And we will start with one of the best, and also somehow one of the scariest movies I have seen all year. Anthony Hopkins, maybe in his seminal work, Florian Zeller's The Father. I remember when the trailer for this movie came out, uh, gosh, I don't even know when, months ago it feels like at this point, uh, and when I first saw it, and I kind of, I kind of initially thought, I don't know if, if you've seen this movie, let me know if you ever had this thought before you watch the movie, but I kind of felt like I thought it had some kind of, or it would have some kind of conspiracy behind it, right? Because of course you watch the trailer and it's clear that it's about a man who is suffering from dementia. And I mean, that is, that is the, the bare bones description of the plot of this movie, right? And it's an, an insight, I suppose, into what these people go through and feel like the kind of prison that is their own mind and the fear that goes into all that stuff. And we can talk about the acting and everything else that went into this movie. But, but I, I have to admit when I saw the trailer, I kind of thought like maybe he was saying the whole time and it's going to be like a psychological horror or a psychological thriller or something. The truth is it is much more straightforward than that. And it is simply, like I said, an insight into someone who has dementia, but Having said that, it's still really scary. It's a scary look because it's so real. Like, full disclosure, as an adult, I've only kind of, uh, in, a, in a parallel sense, experienced someone who has dementia and that kind of thing. Like, my grandmother, who I was very close with when I was younger, she had dementia in her final days. She passed away when she was, I was about 10 or 11 years old, and she would have been about mid-80s, I think, like 83, 84, 85, and I mean, look, I was a, I was young, right? I wasn't even a teenager at that point. And I never really, 
I never really knew that to the degree what my parents and what my my mom is the youngest of seven siblings. Okay, so what my mom and all of her sisters, all girls, uh, had to go through when their mom was passing away, right? And yeah, she had pretty severe dementia to the point where uh, I mean, she was living with uh, some some family, but in you know final days in the hospital, and she didn't really recognize me. And I remember as a kid being kind of confused about that. And I guess I haven't really thought about it too many times since then. I freely admit, but. I don't know. I, I guess, I guess I was just thinking about her because of of the the role we see Anthony Hopkins plays, playing a guy I should say whose name is Anthony, which I think was really funny. But either way, I guess it just it just puts that kind of stuff more into context. I guess, right? If you have had to deal with it, hey, honestly, more power to you. My my fiance, she had to deal with her grandmother uh, who was in her nineties when she was when she passed away, and uh, she had pretty severe dementia towards the end. And I only experienced that like via phone calls and so on but man it was uh if you've dealt with that or you know someone who dealt with that certainly and caring for them and whatnot uh, good for you kudos for you because if this movie makes it you know it's a it's 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 hell it is it's absolutely hell on earth and i think uh, it starts and ends of course with this movie with anthony hopkins right and i mean look hopkins sir anthony hopkins uh anthony hopkins uh is probably one of the more distinguished actors ever maybe right like he's certainly a very distinguished career a very long career right things like obviously silence of the lambs we can talk about elephant man and a whole host of of other movies shakespeare certainly we can talk about his more recent stuff right i mean i almost feel like after he he got a little older he almost had a little bit of a re- renaissance i guess when it comes to a whole finding new audiences i suppose right and certainly he was uh, uh the two popes right that was just i think that was just last year crazily enough but either way anthony hopkins this might be, and again, maybe recency bias here, but this might be the best piece of acting he has ever done. Honestly, I think it is just the, the like the, you could probably give him, like, you know, when they, when they go to the Oscars and they pick which parts of the movie get, get shown on the screen, right? Like the, I guess is like kind of sizzle reel, for lack of a better word. And you could probably pick any part of this movie, right? And then look, this movie, The Father, directed by Florian Zeller, also starring Olivia Coleman. Um, is based on a play, right? And you you can kind of see that, right? A lot of standing around, talking, a lot of uh, a lot of really wordy kind of run on parts. I guess they're like they're kind of monologues, I guess, right? Kind of soliloquies, kind of, right? But not quite. Uh, but all by Anthony Hopkins, certainly. Olivia Coleman does an absolutely amazing job as someone dealing with uh, Alzheimer's, uh, dementia, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it's a more it's a more quiet role. And I think you can you might argue that. Anthony Hopkins had way more to do, and he absolutely did, but it's just, gosh, it's just, watching it is scary because it feels so real, right? And you can see the confusion, and the other half of this movie that makes it so impressive certainly is Anthony Hopkins' acting, but it is the clever, I guess, I guess it is a combination of things, cinematography, lighting, set, and production design, because the entire movie, more or less, takes place in a large apartment, right? And you're not sure because you see everything that Anthony Hopkins sees, which I think makes this movie so much more of almost like a psychological horror, like I was saying before, because you see the set change as he sees it change, right? So there's a picture on the on the wall, and then when he comes back, it's gone. He, he walks down the hall, and there are some beautiful end tables and clocks, like a grandfather clock, and all these different things. He comes back out, and it's gone. The, the walls are different colors. The lighting is different. People look different. And that's the other thing. Like Olivia Coleman is his daughter, Anne, but uh, Anne is portrayed by a couple different actresses in this movie, uh, Olivia Coleman and Olivia Williams. 
And, uh, and then, you know, I think as you watch it, you come to realize that this guy, again, a prison of his own mind, I mean, he is dealing with uh, experiencing things in a non-linear fashion as you go on. Like, there's a scene where he has dinner with his daughter and her husband, and he enters the room, and as you as that conversation ends, okay, I'm just going to point out the kitchen scene, the kitchen dinner, they're eating chicken, okay? That's the point where I think you should, not, not that you shouldn't pay attention to anything else, but I think this is the part that really, I, I actually gasped aloud when I saw this scene because of how, just how amazingly done it was, right? I Like, I literally, I think I might have said, like, holy S, just out, out loud, right? So, I... Uh, I can't recommend this movie enough because it's not just Anthony Hopkins' acting, right? It is just everything put together. And look, I think when we're doing movies this close to the Oscars, I guess we always do tend to look at them in with the lens of uh, what awards it could win. And I believe what uh, the major three awards, at least, it's, it's up for is uh, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, certainly, Best Picture, and Best Adapted Screenplay, because we mentioned it was adapted from a play. And look, I, it's actually possible it wins none of those. It might have been nominated for more. I'm not entirely sure off the top of my head. But at least for those three, it is entirely possible it wins none, right? I mean, right now, I would say the most likely one maybe is Best Adapted Screenplay. But I got to say, as much as I think Chadwick Boseman absolutely deserves to win his Oscar, I honestly, I think, like, I, I do think that while that will be remembered as his best performance of a, of a career that was tragically cut short... Uh, I, I dare I say that this might be the best performance of Anthony Hopkins' career of a very long and distinguished career, right, as we said before. So, honestly, if I had to pick one person to win the Oscar, based now that I have seen all the five Best Actor Oscars, okay, I've seen uh, Gary Oldman in Mank, I've seen Riz Ahmed in The Sound of Metal, I've seen Steven Yeun in Minari, Hopkins in The Father, and Chadwick Boseman in My Rainey's Black Bottom. Those are the five nominees, I think. Uh, but if those are the five nominees, if I had to rank them, right? I mean, I'm sorry, Gary Oldman, I'm putting you at the bottom. Uh, no, no, uh, no slight against you, but it's just that just didn't really interest me as much. Uh, he's at the bottom. Uh, probably, probably Stephen Yoon is in the four spot, right? He's uh, he's in the four spot. I would probably put honestly Chadwick Boseman in the three spot, Riz Ahmed in the two spot. And Anthony Hopkins is number one, honestly. It's funny, I, 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 I'm not sure if I've ever spoken about this on this podcast, but I like to bet a couple dollars here and there on some things. But one thing I like to bet on the most are the Oscars. I mean, certainly we do the predictions, and we'll do those coming up here soon, but I love doing the uh, the betting because it's, a, I don't know, it's fun, right? And uh, funnily enough, uh, Anthony Hopkins on some websites was like plus a thousand to to win and this is after he already won the BAFTA right he won the BAFTA the other day so I mean I think it's not impossible that he wins it's still very unlikely because I think this is Chadwick Boseman's award to lose again at least in part because of his untimely death but at the same time uh, if Anthony Hopkins were to win I wouldn't be put out at all Uh, frankly if any any of them outside of Gary Oldman I'm sorry Mank were to win I would not be put out frankly because they're all just so amazing. I almost cussed there. I'm sorry, but uh, it, they were all they were all just frankly so good, right? So there you go. Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, some other people as well. I mentioned Olivia Williams, Mark Gaddis, who you may recall from Sherlock or Doctor Who, if that's your thing, and a lot of other things as well. Game of Thrones, right? Rufus Sewell. I might be mispronouncing his last name. I always remember him from uh, uh, A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, right? So, but I, I don't know. It was, it was a great cast. 
that it it, it, let, it kind of stays with you. It's sad. It's kind of scary, but it is. It, it's one of those movies, kind of like Spotlight, right? Where I don't really ever feel the desire to ever watch that movie ever, ever again. But at the same time, it was re- it was a really good watch and a fantastic job by Anthony Hopkins. So if you want to see one of the best acting performances, maybe even comparing if if he were to win and you compare it to the last three best actor award winners, I dare say he might be better than them, right? I I dare say he might be better than. I'm trying to think here. Joaquin Phoenix, Rami Malek, and actually I think it was Gary Oldman himself, right? That was when he played uh, Winston Churchill, I want to say. But yeah, if you were to compare him to any of those three guys, I dare say he is better than all of them, maybe even put together. But he, it's just, it is fantastic. It is a fantastic performance, and I can't recommend it enough. All right, let's keep motoring along. As I mentioned, we are wrapping up the Best Picture nominee discussion. You can catch all the other ones, by the way, on uh, earlier episodes of the podcast. But uh, as we are continuing on, a movie that I should have watched a long ago, but uh, here we go. Trial of the Chicago 7, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Let me tell you about my life before The loneliness I've been through Maybe then you will understand Why I need you to be Truly, 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 truly it's funny that we're finally here, you guys listening to me talk about Trial of the Chicago 7, because this movie this movie came out in October of 2020, and it is now April of 2021, and I can't believe I've put off watching this movie for so, so, so long. I gotta admit, when it came out, and I saw the trailer for it, uh, I kind of immediately lumped it in with Mank, and I know that's unfair because it's not like I at the, at the time I knew too much about either movie. And, you know, I you guys know I didn't really care for Mank all that much, and I definitely in my mind put The Trial of the Chicago 7 uh, with Mank in that. So uh, it's unfair of me to do that for sure. You know, I definitely maybe – what's the saying? Like, you know, don't read a book by its cover. I definitely uh, – what? what judged this movie based on its poster and, like, the subject matter. A 1968 uh, courtroom drama about the uh, events at the Democratic National Convention that year and the riots and the protesting around the the Vietnam War and the trial that followed for the people who were, I guess, being made an example of, right? So, look, that's all... uh, That's the the basic plot of this movie and, of course, based on real events, right? But I I, uh, definitely didn't give it a fair shot, which I just kept... And I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. I'm very pleased to say that now that I have actually watched it, very good movie, I gotta say. I mean, obviously, it was nominated for Best Picture and for a number of other awards, including uh, Best Supporting Actor for Sasha Baron Cohen, who was absolutely magnificent. Look, I'm not, I'm, it's, it's, I shouldn't be surprised, I guess, but I guess relative to my own expectations, I am a little bit, right? But either way, absolutely great movie. Uh, the, the ensemble cast of Trial of the Chicago 7, I mean, it's absolutely huge, right? Uh, Frank Langella... I mentioned Sasha Baron Cohen already, Eddie Redmayne, John Carroll Lynch, uh, Mark Rylance, just as, I mean, uh, uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, uh, a whole bunch of other people as well, right? But by and large, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I'm just remembering more people as I, as I talk to you guys, uh, it's, it was a, it's a huge cast, right? Definitely the best ensemble, I would say. Um, I think of all the characters I mentioned, certainly Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Abby Hoffman, one of the Chicago Seven, was is probably my favorite because he's charismatic and he's funny, but also is clearly very, very intelligent. Um, and Sasha Baron Cohen does a great job of capturing this guy, his energy, and also his kind of his charisma, but his passion as well. 
And uh, if nothing else, I'm very happy that more people are going to get to know Sasha Baron Cohen outside of Borat. Like, don't get me wrong, Borat's funny as a character, and I mean, I've always been more partial to Aldi G myself, <laughs> but uh, I, I never really liked Bruno, I, I gotta say. But uh, I, uh, I'm happy more people are going to get to know Sasha Baron Cohen as like a dramatic actor, right? We've always, we've always known. Like, if you listen to this podcast and you watch movies and stuff, I think like by and large you'd be aware of that already. But maybe the average person, if you ask, hey, what's Sasha Baron Cohen known for? Like everyone's going to say Borat, right? So him getting an Oscar nomination for this, I think, is is great because he absolutely deserved it. I almost feel like. He could have been nominated for Best Actor, and I mean, we already had the discussion in previous episodes about like how how log jammed that race was, and Delroy Lindo not getting nominated and all that stuff. Um, but maybe I honestly, I would have like if you had said, "Yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen was the best was was the lead actor of this movie," I would have been like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, I believe that." But maybe because there are so many. It's such a huge ensemble that they figured they couldn't really sell it, so they put him in the uh, Best Supporting race. But, look, either way, uh, terrific role for him. Frank Langella as the as Judge Julius Hoffman, the, the prejudiced judge who clearly you know hates black people and hates minorities and basically is a representation of a world clinging to uh, the status quo, clinging to the power they have already and wanting to make sure everything stays that way. I mean, the man, I looked it up, the man in real life was born in 1895. 1895, this guy was born in the 1800s, this judge in real life, and he's presiding over a trial that largely had to do with, like, race and, and, uh, and like, cultural revolution and counterculture. Of course, the guy, like, didn't... I'm not making an excuse for him, but, I mean... He clearly did not like change, right? And I think a big part of the 60s is that it's about change, right? It's also kind of, on a quick aside, a little disheartening to know that the issues of of race and culture and police and brutality and all those things are things that certainly they discussed back in the 60s that are still being discussed today, right? And maybe that's just a reflection of the world we live in and time is a flat circle and all that kind of stuff, but it is a little sad. On, On the flip side, it's probably why Aaron Sorkin wrote and directed this movie, right? Because he he realized that the issues that existed back then are issues that are still very relevant today. I think it was actually pretty interesting. They uh, kind of bookend the movie. Well, maybe not bookend. They, the movie starts, I should say, and has sprinkled throughout it some uh, images of... You know, they, they have images of, of Martin Luther King Jr. before and, and after his assassination. Um, we talked about Judas and the Black Messiah in previous episodes. Uh, Fred Hampton is a character in this movie, and they have pictures of his actual assassination uh, in history in this movie as well. So kind of interesting that two, like the same time period is being uh, visited and two Best Picture nominees, right? But yeah, look, I guess art, I guess, always is a reflection of the times you live in, and we live in very tumultuous times, and I, I appreciated that Aaron Sorkin didn't really shy away from it. It does seem a little, maybe not, sanitized is not the right word, but it does seem a little sped along, right? Like, there is a very uncomfortable scene where Yahya Abdul-Mateen, who plays Bobby Seal, uh, a member of the Black Panthers organization, is is literally bound and gagged in court because he is speaking out about the fact that he does not have legal representation. And I think in real life, they were actually referred to as the Chicago 8, and then his case was viewed as a mistrial because of the way he was treated and the fact that he did not have legal representation, and it was separated from the main case, viewed as a mistrial, and he wasn't ever charged with anything after that. The, they declined to retry the case, I believe they said. Uh which is great, obviously, but it was very uncomfortable in the movie to to, to watch him literally get like, chained for speaking out, gagged, and basically ba- he could barely breathe. 
and because he was speaking up for himself, right? And I think that's another representation visually of how black people and um, to a lesser degree, other minorities are treated in the United States. And I mean, look, I'm not going to pretend Canada is some saintly place. They do that kind of stuff here to a lesser extent as well, right? So it's just uh, I, I thought it was fascinating. Um, I, and again, it was sped up, I think, a little bit because I believe in real life after I read a little bit about it after I watched the movie that he was bound and gagged for three days. And only like months later was it viewed to be a mistrial, right? So uh, yeah, I, I get this. I get why they did it for like the narrative sake of the movie because it's still it's still something that happened in real life. But it's crazy that that happened in real life. Like that's a that is insane that in an actual court of law, some someone did that. It's like the literal. It's basically, and I'm sure, I'm sure this was intentional. The literal justice system gagging a minority because they didn't like what he was saying. Right. That is uh, that's a little too on the nose, almost. Right. But either way, uh, it's an absolutely terrific movie with great messaging. As I mentioned, great acting as well. I mentioned I mentioned Yahya Abdul Mateen. He was great. Um, if you remember, he was Black Manta in Aquaman. He also played Doctor Manhattan in the uh, most recent uh, adaptation of of The Watchmen, right? That like kind of the miniseries, I guess we're calling it on HBO. Uh, very good, by the way. If you, I know this is like a movie podcast, but if you haven't seen it, it's like movie quality as far as I'm concerned. It's absolutely terrific. So go and watch that if you haven't watched it. But uh, yeah, he was great. Langella and Cohen, I talked about. Mark Rylance probably is the other guy. He plays the defense attorney. He was absolutely fantastic. Kind of like this wary guy who, you know, is kind of doing certainly doing his job, but it's a kind of like wry humor. And as the, everyone gets more and more fed up, he clearly is on the side of the Chicago Seven, not just because he's their lawyer, but like morally and ethically as well. I don't know. I just, it was a great movie. It was an absolutely terrific movie. I'm sad I waited this long to watch it because then we could have been talking about it this whole time in reference to other things. Things, right so i guess there shame on me for waiting it because i was a little uh biased myself against what i thought would be kind of a boring movie but again it's uh, not boring at all very watchable the last thing i'll say is that uh, the editing is absolutely very slick right like for example the movie opens on a montage of uh of uh, just you getting to know all the different characters before the Democratic National Convention and before all the protests and riots. And then it fast forwards to six months later when they're picking Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the prosecution, the, the what I guess he was the assistant district attorney somewhere. And then it fast forwards again to the actual trial. And during the trial, when people are being cross-examined, like witnesses being cross-examined on the stand, uh, it w- it'll cut back to actual events. So it'll be like, hey, sir, you had this conversation. What do they say? And the guy would reply, well, he said, and then it would cut back to the actual conversation that it acted out, right? I thought that was, I thought that was really well done. They must have had filmed like a, a million different scenes and then chopped them up. So as, and, and, and you never really get a sense of, or pardon me, you never really lose a sense of where you are in the, in the narrative, in the proceedings, right? Like it's all very clear. You, all, you, you know when everything is happening in relation to the trial, in relation to characters, uh, conversations with each other, both in the past and in the present. It's never confusing. And so kudos to the editing team, certainly to Aaron Sorkin as well, but certainly to the editing team for having the, the vision and having the, the ability to do that. Because, I mean, a lesser, a lesser group of people probably would have butchered that, and it's not confusing at all. So I have to say that really adds to my enjoyment of the movie. And again, like I said, an eminently watchable movie with some very uh, relevant themes, both uh, certainly for the 60s and for today. And, yeah, if you haven't seen it, I mean, it's probably going to win a couple of Oscars. I hope it doesn't go empty-handed, right? I mean, personally, I think at this point, if I had to pick my biggest front-runner 
upset is probably trial of the Chicago seven, right? Like we might imagine, you might imagine Nomadland is still the front runner overall at this point, but if there was a movie that could upset it, I, I could see it being trial of the Chicago seven. So we'll have to see on the Oscar front, but either way, just in general, an extremely well-made movie, well-acted kudos to everyone involved, including Aaron Sorkin. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I, I heartily suggest you give it a watch soon. Last movie on the docket for today, and no, I never did figure out what docket means. Apologies to those of you who are waiting on bated breath for that, but (laughs) uh, last movie there uh, for this episode as we catch up on the Best Picture nominees. Another movie I should have watched long ago, but still saving the best for last, directed and written by Emerald Fennell, starring Carrie Mulligan, Promising Young Woman. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. I was busy dreaming about boys, boys, boys. Head is spinning, thinking about I need the bad boy to As we come into the review for Promising Young Woman, uh, you hear the song Boys, which, first of all, is a banger, right? This song is an absolute banger. I hadn't heard it in years, so uh, first of all, thank you to Emerald Fennel for crafting a movie that started with this song. Uh, first, secondly, I should say the soundtrack is from top to bottom great. I, I'm going to include another song to, to wrap things up at the end of the episode. If you want to just fast forward to that, you are you are more than welcome to. I won't blame you because it's really good. But uh, the soundtrack absolutely great. Infuses the movie with some great energy uh, right from the get go. Uh, but that's not what we're entirely here to talk about, right? I mean, the soundtrack is always important, certainly. Uh, it is often considered what like the lifeblood to a movie, along with the score. But at the same time. This movie is about so much more than just music, right? It's about, uh, well, as the, the name would imply, a promising young woman whose life was cut short because she was raped and later killed herself, right? And uh, that that young woman is not Carrie Mulligan. In fact, the the I would I guess the titular character is actually you never actually see that character because when the movie starts, she's already dead. Um, but the idea is simply that Cassandra, who is played by Carrie Mulligan, her best friend, childhood best friend, I, I believe it's implied, Nina, was raped at med school by. Someone I'm sure they consider to be harmless, right? Uh, someone who was probably a friend to them, and yeah, she was raped, and she ended up killing herself out of the guilt and pain and fear and anger that I'm sure she felt. And it really badly affects Cassandra, and when the movie picks up, Cassandra has taken to, she's already dropped out of med school, and she has uh, taken to pretending to be drunk and taking guys who would seduce women home to their apartments and and then you know she pretends she pretends to be drunk then reveals that she's actually sober and kind of just flips the script on them right so uh, you meet Jerry at the beginning who's played by Adam Brody you meet um I'm not actually sure what the second guy's name was because I was distracted by the fact that it was played by Christopher Mintz Plass who of course was McLovin <laughs> in Superbad and then later on in the in the movie I mean her boyfriend is played by Bo Burnham I want to say uh, the guy who plays Schmidt in New Girl, I want to say his name was something Greenfield, Max Greenfield, I think, is a, is, is a guy at the bachelor party at the end. Um, the, the kind of main, I guess, villain of the movie is a guy I've never seen before, although people tell me he's from Veep. I guess the point is what I'm getting at is that all of the men in this movie, and don't get me wrong, this movie is about rape culture and the apologists for rape culture and the people who you know, pretend things are okay and excuse things and all of those different aspects, right? I get the sense that the casting of all the men in the movie was done very much intentionally because they're all kind of 
jokey, fun. They're 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 likable because they're in comedies and they're people who you would immediately look at and you, you you would think not think twice about laughing. I mean, heck, I started rewatching the league recently and Adam Brody is in that and I laughed because I mean that's the kind of actor he is, right? And uh, I, I get the sense that it almost like on a on a on a what meta level the movie is like subverting your expectations because you expect these guys to you know quote unquote do the right thing and they never really do, right? I mean, Bo Burnham. I guess part of the plot is that she kind of allows herself to feel again, right? Because she is basically dead inside since the death of her, her best friend. And uh, she basically allows herself to feel again when she runs into Bo Burnham's character, Ryan. And Ryan turns out in the end, and again, I know I spoil things on this podcast, so maybe you shouldn't be surprised, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to... I won't spoil the very ending, but suffice to say that Ryan is not as innocent as you think he is. He's not exactly complicit, I don't... Or, that's not true at all. I shouldn't say that because he is absolutely complicit in what happens at the end of the movie. But, you know, he he was, like, there at the party and was caught on a recording and didn't do anything about it. He was a complete bystander, was completely okay with it. And when he's confronted with it, he says, oh, well, you know, she she was drunk and we were kids and it was fine. And it was just the exact same kind of language that Cassandra's character... Uh, you know, was dealing with the entire movie and had been dealing with likely her entire life, right? Because that's just something that women deal with, unfortunately, right? So it was, it's just fascinating to see how Emerald Fennell crafted this world, right? It's a it's a world of... It's, it's Cassandra's world, and Carrie Mulligan... Um, I don't think I need to say this necessarily so directly because she's great in everything she does, but Mulligan, like, she she infuses Cassandra with grief and anger and fear... And, and certainly happiness and passion at times. But it's like, like I said, she's already dead inside. And she basically, what? Like, she comes back to life briefly with Bo Burnham. And then when she gets a, when she finds her, her purpose again, which is part of the driving force of the movie, which is to get revenge on the people who basically ended Nina's life, she is she has purpose, basically, right? So it's just, it, all those things wrapped up into one is is basically why Carrie Mulligan is probably going to win an Oscar in, in a couple of days. But uh, I, I think, nonetheless, Oscars or not, she gives an absolutely um, great performance. Probably the best performance of her career so far, and that's including, like, an education and... Gosh, I mean, I guess we can include The Great Gatsby and Drive and all those other movies as well, right? But it's a great, it's a fantastic movie, an indictment of rape culture, but also just a great way to point out how many insidious little things that you yourself might not be even be aware you're a part of, right? I mean, Alison Brie plays her her former acquaintance slash friend from university who brushed off the allegations when Nina came to her and told her that she had been raped. She brushed it off because it was like, oh, well, Nina, you clearly had too much to drink, right? She targets the dean, played by Connie Nielsen, who said, well, we don't want to ruin this nice young man's life because with these allegations and it was he said, she said, who knows what to believe, right? She turns to the lawyer, uh, played by Alfred Molina, and I mentioned uh, actually uh, an education before, which I want to say came out like 2008, 2009, um, and he played her father in that, and it was a very different dynamic here, the sleazy lawyer who has realized he's ruined the lives of so many people, and it's just, I gotta say, it's a, it's a fascinating watch because even I felt like, man, did I, have I have I not done enough to protect not like I mean not just my my family members but like my female friends? Because I I always think as an aside, whenever you see guys speak up for women, I think it is crucial that you look to see if they're mentioning like their sister or their mom or their cousins or something, right? Like you, I, I think it is crucial to expect empathy and and action from men. Towards people who like don't care for them or don't 
provide them like unconditional love, right? Like your family members or your wives or girlfriends or whatever, right? Like it's, it's, you can, that's all well and good, but that doesn't really get to the root of the problem. The problem is respecting and, and giving attention to respecting women and giving attention to the problem, which is simply that you can't just do it for the people you already know. You have to do it for everybody. Right. So I think, uh, I think this movie does kind of get to that a lot. And I, I want to say it's done in a very succinct fashion, not a very long movie, right? And it's done with a lot of great uh, framing devices as well. Like, there's a great moment where she meets, um, again, McLovin. I, I, I always butcher his name. Christopher Mintz Plass, I want to say it is what it is, right? But she meets him at the beginning of the movie. And uh, she kind of like, when she does the whole thing where she pretends to be drunk and then is actually sober, when she reveals that she is sober to him, she kind of walks in front of what I think is a movie poster or a music poster or a concert, something, whatever. It was like a skull with, with like devil horns on it, a black skull over a red background. And when she, when he's like, what the F, you're actually sober, she kind of like shrugs. She kind of goes like, eh, like, what are you going to do, right? This is, that, that's what you're going to do. And, and when she does that, she like standing right in front of the poster so it looks like she's wearing devil horns right and i thought that was fascinating because i feel like that's clearly a visual representation of what that guy is seeing in that moment right like he thinks that he can just you know bang this girl because she's drunk and not and consequence free and when the moment he finds out she's actually sober and is not going to sleep with him he views her as the devil right and there's a lot of really interesting things like that with color palettes and very beautifully symmetrically framed shots. I'm a sucker for symmetry, so I thought that was really interesting. There's a shot with her in front of like a blue plate that's hanging on a wall. It kind of looks like, like she's wearing a halo almost. It's a amazingly written, well shot, very well acted movie. I mentioned all those other actors and actresses, but at, this, at the end of the day, Carrie Mulligan is the star, and it's through her raw performance. And it's a raw, and it's also very subtle as well, right? But it's through that great performance that you experience everything. And Bo Burnham to a lesser extent as well. But like I said, the the comedic actor effect means you are constantly expecting them to do the right thing, and they never do. And I think that's a great part of what makes this movie uh, great. Having your, it's like it, it almost like fulfills your expectations. By being a great revenge kind of thrillery kind of movie, but also subverts your expectations about like kind of feeling good about someone dying, right? It's it's really fascinating, I gotta say. So I fully appreciate uh, having seen it. I kind of said I didn't see it before, actually, in the same vein as <laughs> Trial of Chicago Seven. But either way, um, great soundtrack, great acting, great writing and directing. I, I hope you see a promising young woman because it's an important issue in today's society, just like a lot of movies are today. Usually art is a reflection of your society, as we've, we've said before. But I, uh, I, I heartily recommend that anyone who feels like, huh, like, how, how do I say this? Like it's the people who should be watching this movie are probably not exactly going to watch it, but it's important for anyone to watch it because I feel like anyone can get something out of this, whether you're a woman and feel to feel that you're being seen or a man to know what it's like to, you know, think of yourself as a nice guy and think of yourself as not ever being lumped into those guys who would do stuff like that, but to see how insidious that kind of stuff really is. Right. So for all those reasons and more promising young woman is, is a great watch. And that does it for the best picture nominees for the 2021 awards season. And, you know, I laugh because I know it sounds like I'm making such a huge production of it, but the truth is, in a regular year, I would have just watched all of these movies at the cinema, in the theater, my butt actually in a cinema seat, eating popcorn, drinking pop, 
right? Uh, on the, you know, enjoying myself, probably by myself for a lot of these movies. I, I don't really think my, my roommate, I mean, he did watch a bunch of a bunch of them with me at home. My girlfriend watched a couple of them with me as well. But I mean, by and large, I probably would have been going to the movies like during the day on a day I didn't have work to just watch these by myself. And I think because that was absent this year, in addition to just sports being insanity and so as a result jo- uh, my, my my job is just insane as well uh you know it it, it felt like a, not a chore but it felt like i actually had to work at watching them whereas like usually you like seamlessly work them in like yeah i got some time i'll go to the theater and watch which is funny because i ended up watching all these movies at home anyways right so look i don't know if your viewing habits have changed during the pandemic mine have a teensy bit but uh, either way, like I said, very happy to finally have watched all of the Best Picture nominees. And here, here's the thing. I'm going to do, I mentioned up the top, I'm going to do the Oscar predictions episode in a couple of days with Quentin. Um, but until then, really quickly, I, I got to say, I think now that I have seen all of them and I can make my own judgments and not just you know read reviews and see what people are saying, I legitimately think the worst of them in my objective uh, film experience, <laughs> uh, is Mank. Mank is at the very bottom. And you know what else? The second worst one, or uh, what? Let's say the seventh best one, I think, of eight movies, uh, is Nomadland. Nomadland, and this might be an unpopular take, Nomadland is barely a movie. You will hear me expound on that opinion when we chat with Quentin, but it's like, it, Nomadland is maybe the best documentary I have seen this year, and Chloe Zhao deserves all the praise, and she's probably a, as mortal a lock for best director as there is at this uh, these Academy Awards this year. Maybe, maybe behind Soul for best animated picture and best score. Outside of that, I, I dare say the next biggest lock of the evening is probably Chloe Zhao for Best Director. A lot of the other awards are still up up in the air, I would say, right? I mean, both the, both the screenplay awards, looks like Promising Young Woman is going to win that one for original screenplay and probably uh, Trial of the Chicago 7 going to win for adapted screenplay. But, I mean, would it, would it surprise you all that much for Nomadland to win adapted screenplay and you know, something else to win for uh, original screenplay? Probably not, right? The crazier things that happen, but they're not like locks, right? Chloe Zhao, mortal lock for uh, for best director, but Nomadland, gosh, give me, give me literally any movie not named Nomadland or Mank for best picture. I will take any of those other movies. I think it's probably the most likely that Trial of the Chicago 7 upsets Nomadland in the, at the end of the day, but I mean, let's be real, it's probably still pretty likely going to be Nomadland, but I just mean mean to say that if there was one, yeah, Charlie Chicago 7, the most likely. Give me Minari. Give me Judas and the Black Messiah. Give me Sound of Metal. Give me Promising Young Woman. Give me The Father. Give me any of those movies over Nomadland for Best Picture. Please, please, movie gods, I am begging you. So we'll see, uh, we'll see in less than a week, I guess, if those uh, prayers were answered. <laughs> but either way... Appreciate you listening. Like I said, we will uh, get into uh, way more detail with the conversation on Nomadland and Mank and the rest of these movies in the very next episode in a couple of days with Quentin. And spoiler alert, he loves Nomadland and Mank, so I'm sure it'll be a good discussion. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Hope you have gotten a chance to watch all of the Best Picture nominees as well. I will catch you in a couple of days for the Oscars prediction. And until then, have a great night. Just for-